Amen. And I would invite you to turn to the book of Esther. As we continue, we looked last week generally at an overview of this book. This week, we're going to look at chapter 1. It doesn't always work perfectly to be in one testament in the morning and one in the evening. Soon enough, that will be the case as we move to the New Testament in the morning. We're going to look together at Esther 1 this evening. So if you have an opportunity to find it in your Bibles, if you would please stand with me. As we look together at God's Word, this is the living Word of the true and living God. It is powerful. It is sufficient. It is authoritative. Esther, chapter 1. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the capital, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to the edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women of the palace, that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the, king, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Bitsa, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zathar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown, in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshena, Shethar, Admetha, Tarshish, Maris, Marcina, and Memukan, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom, according to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti, because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs? Then Memukan said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, 
King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard the queen's behavior will say the same thing to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it's vast, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memukan proposed. He sent letters to all of the royal provinces, to every province in his own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own house, hold and speak according to the language of his people. Praise be to God for the reading of his word. You may be seated. This is a very interesting chapter in the scripture. I was thinking about a title for the sermon because preachers do this. I thought of it in terms of the party gone wrong. And it's an interesting chapter and an interesting title because if we think about it, it's a very unique glimpse into the world. Sometimes it appears, especially as tensions arise in America today, as we read bad news, we are tempted as the church to move to more and more of a ghetto mentality. Now by ghetto I don't mean poverty or humongous radios that you carry on your shoulder. I'm dating myself a little. This is before iPods, children. I mean, ghetto in the sense in which it was first described, that is, a smallish area in which you are completely separated off from the rest of the city, of the country, of society. And if we're not careful, we can fall prey to that. We read Christian magazines and listen to Christian music, read Christian books, both fiction and nonfiction. We do everything we can to not have contact with the taint of the outside world. Now, I'm not suggesting we let filth into our lives and home, but I am suggesting that we do need to realize that we live in a society that moves beyond the church. As a matter of fact, that's one of the purposes for the existence of the church, is to be God's mission army attack force into that world. And this chapter is very interesting because it gives us a snapshot of that world. You'll notice there's no Jew here. There's no Bible here. There's no God expressed in this chapter. It's, it could be something out of the Arabian Nights or perhaps even closer, Herodotus' history. It's a very secular chapter. So what are we meant to see from this? What I'd like us to do is look at the at two incidents in this chapter and to see what God would teach us in the midst of them. The first that we will see is the king and his court in the first 12 verses of this chapter. The king and his court. And then from verse 13 down through verse 22, we will see the queen and the law. So the king and his court and the queen 
and the law. Let's look first at the king and his court. And we start here by seeing a banquet that is thrown. And it is a doozy of a party, is it not? A 180-day party that is followed on with a seven-day party for the people who put on the party. This king knows how to party. He even has an edict. Don't worry about how much you drink. There's food. There's gold couches. There's all sorts of things that are here. But what does this mean to us? Well, let's start by making some basic points, setting our context for thinking about this. The first thing is you need to realize that this is intentionally presented as history. This is not once upon a time. This is not long ago in a galaxy far, far away. This is history recounted by the Bible. We know this because, as we saw last week, King Ahasuerus is very likely known by another name to many of you, that is Xerxes, the mighty king of the Persian Empire. And this is in the third year of his reign. And we know from other sources, Herodotus and other Greek histories, that in the third year of his reign, he held a gigantic war council. Because his father had attacked Greece and failed. And he was about to raise an even bigger army and attack and wipe out Greece. He was determined to burn the city of Athens to the ground. And so, following on the inability of his father to attack... He holds this large war council. Now, in Persia, a war council was a gigantic party because there are 127 provinces. There are so many people, as we'll see later, that they have to send out in all kinds of different languages to talk to people. We've already seen there are the Medes and the Persians. There are Babylonians. There are those who lived in Assyria. There are Greek city-states. There are many different places. And so in order to raise an army and attack, King Xerxes, King Ahasuerus, has to show how powerful he is. He has to put on a show that will dazzle. He is bringing them into the boardroom and breaking out the filet mignon and popping champagne and gold forks and gold plates. This is what he is doing. That's what the purpose of this party is. The nobles are coming from 127 provinces. And as we see in verse 3, the army is there as well. And the people of Susa are then given a party for putting all of this work on. And one of the things that should strike us is the great ostentation, the great showiness, as it were, of the situation. Susa is described as the capital. Well, if I were to ask you what the capital of the United States is, you would say... Washington, D.C. Or the capital of Russia, you would say, Moscow. But if I asked you what the capital of the Persian Empire was, you'd have to say, well, actually, there are four. There's Susa, there's Ekbana, there's Babylon, and there's Persepolis. That empire was so big, there were four capitals. And the reason they're in Susa is because the court, well, they could be Houstonians. They didn't like the cold in the winter. So during the winter period, they went to the warmest capital. Makes a lot of sense to me. I didn't particularly like 35 degrees this morning. And so they go to the warmest capital. But this is a gigantic empire. 
And all of this wealth is on display to show how gigantic the empire is and how powerful and wealthy King Ahasuerus is. As a matter of fact, if you look at the description in verses 6 and 7, the only comparable, although it's much larger, descriptive nature of a place is the tabernacle and the temple. There's no other place in the Bible where the curtains are described and the colors are described and the linens are described. It is meant to strike us. It is meant to show us that Ahasuerus is a force to be reckoned with. Never forget this banquet as we see God's work unfold in the lives of Esther and Mordecai. We see that in this banquet or after it or during parts of it that a command comes forth. Ahasuerus says, bring my queen so everyone can see how beautiful a lady I have as my wife. You see, Ahasuerus is a powerful, wealthy monarch. And so he lays out this command in the midst of his power. Now, one quick aside. This book is written after the great defeat of the Persians by the Greeks. The Holy Spirit could have started this book by saying, King Ahasuerus, the one whom the Greeks mopped up in that war, that failure of a king, the nobody now, the has-been. But the Bible doesn't do that. It describes him in all his power because it wants you to understand Esther's situation. This isn't just about history, it's about God's work. And so, in the midst of all this drinking, we have another cliche that many of you have heard. It's called, in vino veritas. In wine there is truth. And that is the case here. Because you see, King Ahasuerus has a little bit too much to drink, and he pops off a very reckless command in front of all of his high nobles. Now, the point of the scripture here is not, don't drink. The point of the scripture here is even not, don't get drunk. That's found elsewhere in the scripture. The main point of the scripture here is, in wine truth. That is, we see in the wine that Ahasuerus is a pompous, reckless windbag. Whose word is life or death. This is the guy we're dealing with. This is the man whom Esther deals with. Remember that when you're a little bit critical of her fear later in the book. He is reckless. He is powerful. The drink, the drinking is a symptom of the problem. It is not the problem. Persia is not a safe place to be, especially if you are helpless or a woman. There's an illustration of this in that as he conducted this war, King Ahasuerus with Greece, he tried to build a bridge across what's called the Hellespont, that area of Turkey that joins Asia and Europe. And there was a storm that slowed down the building of the bridge, and he responded to that by having all of the bridge builders' heads cut off. Because he could. And because he was angry. This is the kind of king and power that we see if we think about it, this is a window that we see into the world. How different should God's people be? 
How different should the church be? The church should be a place of safety, not of danger, of calm, not of recklessness, of equality, of blessing, not of power grabbing and bombosity. The church should be a place where we feel safest, not most at risk. And while Ahasuerus fires off this command, and as you recall, Queen Vashti, for whatever reason, the scripture doesn't tell us. We can speculate all we want, but it doesn't tell us. She determines not to come. And he's kind of left holding the bag. You know what this is like, especially you younger guys, you high school students, you college students. You folks who were high school or college boys, you know what it's like to say something in front of your boys and it's really shown up that you don't have the authority. It's the joke that used to come up as I was newly married. This happens to everyone when your friends want to go out and do something and you say, I think as a good husband should, well, let me call in and just check and make sure that there's, I'm not needed. Oh, you got to get permission from your wife. <laughs> And he flies into a rage. He says, I can't have this. I've got to do something about this. And so one domino after another begins to take place. This little action, this one reckless action of saying, bring in the queen, starts off an entire series of events. Now, we shouldn't miss the biblical truth in that. You see, we've been studying Second, First, and Second Kings, and we have seen a lot of miraculous things, haven't we? But we need to remember that God's miraculous acts in history are punctuations between long years in which there are no miraculous acts. There are no wondrous deeds that we see. That's even more the case now as miracles, rightly speaking, have ceased. And so we shouldn't expect God only to work through miraculous means. He works through the ordinary acts of history. For these dominoes that the king has tipped over, as it were, have been set up by the Lord God. We'll see that more in weeks to come. Well, this is the king and his court. And then now let's look briefly at the queen and the law. And so what happens? King Ahasuerus doesn't know what to do. He's got to save face. His queen will not obey him. He's not exactly in a good spot. And so what he does is he calls in his seven highest advisors, those who know the times, it's said. <clears throat> These are men who were astrologists, wise men. He brings all seven of them in, and he says, what do I need to do about this? Tell me. He says, according to the law, what am I to do? Well, when he says according to the law, it really means give me your advice. There's no statute that's written down. If the queen doesn't come during a banquet when she is called, she gets six months probation. There's no penal code for that. And so he goes to them and asks them this question. And so that should immediately strike you, I think, in one way. Now think about this. This is a man who makes a request of his wife whether it's legitimate or illegitimate, and she refuses, whether legitimate or illegitimate. And what does he do? Does he talk to her? Does he come alongside her? Does he try and instruct her? No. 
He takes it to court. Now think about the foolishness of that. This is not just a king and a queen. This is his life. This is his marriage. He's violating a prime biblical principle of reconciliation because that's what's needed here. The prime principle of biblical reconciliation is you must go to the person that you would be reconciled with. You don't gossip about them behind their back. You don't form a committee. You don't ask 15 people what their opinion is if you're righteously angry at them. You go to the person. If you don't, you end up with an Esther 1 mess. A complete mess. This is a biblical principle of reconciliation. And so these advisors, they're more than welcome. They're more than happy to give him advice. And so they say, well... This is the advice that we would give according to the unalterable law of the Medes and the Persians. Now, if we think about it, there really is no sense in which the law is unalterable. Because first of all, it makes for a very awkward way to run a kingdom. What happens if you make a mistake? You have to keep going with the mistake. If you tell people to walk that way and there's a cliff, they just keep walking and you can't stop them. Also think about it, this king is... The most powerful man in the world here. His word is life and death. Who's going to tell the king he can't do that? The guy who's going to lose his head in about 15 minutes, that's who. What really is happening here is the Lord is showing us through this the arrogance of this kingdom. That their law is so good, so perfect, it is unalterable. It's actually almost a mockery of God's law. This is the way that kings speak who think they are God. I've told you this before, it's one of my favorite scenes in all of cinema. It is the various times in which Yul Brenner playing the proud Pharaoh says, so let it be written, so let it be done. Because I say it, it is law. And of course it's right, because I've said it. That's the attitude here. And so what happens here is they immediately begin to escalate the problem. They are playing off on the king and they take this to a crisis level. Well, what you need to do, king, is you need to go throughout all the kingdom and you need to tell everyone that the man is the king of his castle and that he is the boss. And you better do it right quick, king. Otherwise, your kingdom's going to fall apart. You've heard the saying much in the last few weeks, never waste a crisis. That's what's going on here. But do you see the irony? The king is embarrassed because his wife won't obey him. So what's the solution? Tell every single man in the kingdom what has happened. Send out a law that says, the queen didn't obey the king, therefore everybody has to, every woman has to obey her man. It's, it brings about the exact opposite that you would think he would want. That's the foolishness of the world. He spreads his impotence. He spreads his inability to govern his own house in front of everyone. Does that temptation ever come to you? It comes back to that principle of reconciliation we talked about. And that is that if you have friction with your spouse or fellow church member or someone at work, does it really help the situation if everybody at work knows there's friction? Because you ask everybody their opinion. Does it really help not only reconciliation, but your position 
at church if everybody knows that you don't talk to so-and-so because you've had a conflict? Of course not. Don't make an Esther one mistake. So the king takes this bad advice. And it leads to something else that's bad. Bad power. The solution here is to double the level of intimidation. The king doubles down. It wasn't enough to demand that the queen come. It wasn't enough to rage against her. Now he is going to make the law of the Medes and the Persians known everywhere. He is going to intimidate not only his wife, but every woman in the kingdom. And the blindness of this advice is actually funny. It is okay at times to laugh at the Bible. Because there are times the Bible wants you to laugh at the stupidity of sin. It wants you to see the humor in this situation. That this incredibly powerful monarch with all this wealth can't control his own emotions, his wife, or his kingdom. It's ridiculous. The man who would be God can't even control his own family. It's hilarious. There is irony in it, and there is intended sarcasm. And so what happens then? The drama begins to unfold. We see that this decree goes out, and you can picture the horses are saddled. The, the decrees are written and bound and waxed. And they're brought out. And women cower in fear. And men who delight in oppressing them have great glee. And people are put in great fear of the king whose very word to be brought throughout the entire kingdom. We are meant to be awed and afraid at the way this king can act. Because you see, by every account, Esther's situation should have ended exactly as Vashti's. She was a helpless woman. And the irony is, is that she becomes the woman who defeats all of these powerful men by the power of God. Do not lose the irony of that. You see, we live in a day and age in which we speak highly of equality. We talk of glass ceilings. We talk of all sorts of things, especially in America, wiping away the differences between men and women. But in this day and age, in this kingdom, to be a woman was probably in some senses lower than a slave. You had no authority. You had no power. You were completely at the whim of your father or husband or brother. You should have no hope of victory. And yet God uses, to quote Paul, the weak things of the world to confound the strong. You see, what those who are in the story don't count on is that it is not odds that matter. It is not power that matters. It is God that matters. And so as we look at this story, the question then comes to you. Is that your hope? Is your hope in whiz kids with calculators at the Department of Treasury? Is your hope that the energy industry will double? Is your hope in the tanks and missiles that our nation has? Is your hope even in evangelistic material and booklets and Bible printing that we have? Or is your hope in the God who uses babes, Psalm 8, to confound the wicked out of the mouths of infants young? 
He, the power of praise, composes. This is the same God we serve who watched over Esther. This is the same Lord who is in control and has power. One final point as we conclude. I think something else we're meant to see here is a picture of power. Something we see and something we don't. One of the principles that runs throughout the Scripture is that stewardship of power is important. It's important that those who are in power act wisely, whether they be husbands and fathers, elders, kings, or presidents. And here what we see is a very classic example of power gone wrong. As I was studying this this week, I thought in my sanctified imagination that perhaps our Lord was thinking of this passage when he said in Matthew 20, verse 25, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whomever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. You see, Jesus knew what he was talking about. Not just from a biblical truth perspective, but from a historical perspective as well. You see, he knew that only the perfect king can wield the kind of absolute power that we see in this chapter. It's why we see in Matthew 4, verses 8 through 10, after the devil took Jesus to a high mountain, And he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said, all these I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. You see, Jesus knew the principle, the absolute power or any power for that matter is only for the glory of God. That's the call to you today as a Christian. Wherever you have power or authority, it could be in your family, it could be in your workplace, you are called to use it in the service of the King of Kings. These are lessons from Esther chapter 1. Next week we will move from the world and begin to see the life of Esther. May the Lord bless us as we continue to study this marvelous Tale of His Providence. Let us pray.